Sam Clements and welcome to episode one of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a unique film festival where we'll play pretty much any film, but it must be no longer than 90 minutes. It is also entirely curated by guests, and today I am joined by my very first guest, Simon Renshaw. Hello. You are the first 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest guest. Thank you very much. It's very pleasing that those words rhyme. We should make a (laughs) t-shirt. I'd love a t-shirt. Regular listeners to My Voice on the Internet will be familiar with Simon's voice because we're often voices together on the Picture House podcast. You can find that on a, on a separate pod feed. There's lots of those. Yeah, eight years of them. Probably. There's eight years of those to go back. Go back to the first episode, <laughs> listeners. See what we were talking <laughs> oh, about back then. Oh, God, don't. Please, please don't do that. You also work at Casarotto Ramsey, a literary agency. That's right. We represent some of the best talent in the world. It's nice. You're in the thick of it. It's a thrill and a joy. Right. So this is a podcast where we're celebrating films that are 90 minutes or less. Mm. I'm intrigued because I actually don't know this. What is your favorite film? My favorite film? Well, mm. okay. So my two favorite films are Planes, Trains and Automobiles and Beetlejuice. And this both silly films from the late 80s. <laughs> Planes, Trains is 93 minutes and Beetlejuice is 92 both disqualified, unfortunately. But I don't know if I would have chosen them either. I had a long old think about potential choices. But no, Beetlejuice is the one that... It's the film that made me love films, really. And the thing about it that really made me love films was Elfman's score, which I just love so, so, so much. And Planes, Trains and Automobiles is a film that I genuinely think I've seen triple figures now. Wow. Disgusting to watch a film that many times. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful. But what a piece of work. I just love it so much. It's so silly. I like silly comedy, as we might learn throughout the rest of this podcast. I'm kind of pleased that your favourite films aren't eligible for this film festival. Yes, Because it's too. made you think. It really has. When, you, when you're looking through cinema listings, mm. how do you feel when you see, oh, that film is 85 minutes, that film is 91 minutes? Like, how do you feel about these? these films at the shorter end of the feature spectrum. There is very little that gives me greater pleasure in this life than knowing that a film is less than 90 minutes long. (laughs) I'm not just saying that to get into your good books. I don't want us to be a nice first guest. Everyone loves a short film because it's a complete thing, but it just happens to be not 165 minutes long, which means that you can watch... Two of them. (laughs) You could have two great stories for the price of one great story that's just longer. So everyone wins if it's shorter, which is why I think this is the best idea for a film festival in the whole universe. What a great use of time. Everybody's very busy these days. And watching a film after work, sometimes say if you finish, uh, you know, like a regular sort of nine to five sort of day, you can get one film in if you're lucky. Exactly. Unless... They're 90 minutes or less. Right. People who commute can watch a film on the way to work. If you're anything like me, you like to hoover up as much culture as possible. I like to cram it all in. And I can only cram it all in if they're 
little short ones. So before coming onto the podcast, we gave you some homework, which was to choose the film that you want to submit yes. into the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Yes. How did you approach this question and what did you choose? I firstly thought in my brain about films that I love. I thought about Planes, Trains and Automobiles and then I googled it and then I thought about Beetlejuice and then I googled it and was very upset. And then I had a really big think and then obviously, I mean, I'm sure that all of your guests will do the same thing. You Google the search term <laughs> films that are under 90 minutes and look through the masses and masses of lists. And I was genuinely surprised that there's so much great choice and so much diverse choice as well, which made this choice particularly difficult. I went through loads of listings, though. Absolutely loads. I think it would have been very easy to choose... A Toy Story, A Squid and the Whale, A Rope, A Dumbo. Dumbo's like 64 minutes. I mean, even I think that's too short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a third act. That's why you need the, the last half hour. Come on, guys. It's all right, Tim Burton will sort that out probably in his new one. I was thinking about choosing Tomboy and then I didn't choose Tomboy, although I love that film and I hope someone chooses it in the future. I think I, I wanted to choose a crowd pleaser mm. and I think and hope that this film is a crowd pleaser. Oh, do you want me to tell you what the film is? I mean, I think if people have downloaded the pod, they might know, but let's do it for the consistency of the show. It's the producers. And this is Mel Brooks's classic 1968 original, exactly. The Producers, not the 2005 uh, More, uh, musical one with Nathan Lane. And... Exactly. The original. It's 50 years old. It's happy 50th, Happy Mel. 50th. It celebrated its 50th anniversary. And I thought that was a nice way to celebrate it. Also, I think it was re-released, right? I it was. It, was it just had a big restoration and re-release and it looks brand new now. Yeah, good. As well it should. And it still looks pretty good. It's shot on 35, so it looks lovely. I chose this film because I think a, a big silly, crowd-pleasy film. I love farce a lot, and I love silly comedy, and I think it is a very successful one for a number of different reasons. And also, it's 88 minutes long. A joy. Which fits the brief. <laughs> Thank God. It's a film that's close to my heart that I would relish the chance to celebrate with other people. Producers is Mel Brooks's feature debut. Yeah, it's his first film. Celebrated figure, uh, Mel Brooks. He'd already had a career before this. Yeah. Like, he was on television. He did stand-up. Before that, he was in the army. He yeah. served in World War II. And by 1968, he was a bit of an old hat at showbiz. And and I think he'd always wanted to write something. And I think the producer started off life as a book, as a play, a film. And it does feel like it's all sort of weird Frankenstein of stuff. I think that... What's interesting about... Well, I think it very much feels like a debut. Mm. It's scrappy, but I think it has a core, key, central conceit that works very well. And one that is... That even people who haven't seen the film know. So the producers follows Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, who I did not know really before this film, and I don't know outside of this film. Yeah. And he co-stars with Gene Wilder, who I do, and I think listeners will know outside of this film. Max Bialystok is a washed-up Broadway producer. He was the king of Broadway at one point, and we now see him in quite a sad situation in a little sad office where he has to romance old ladies in order to uh, get checks to fund his upcoming production. 
Dickens. At the beginning of the film, we also meet our, our other protagonist, Leo Bloom, played by Gene Wilder, an accountant who's come in to do his books whilst Max Bialystok is romancing uh, one of his potential funders. Oh, and it's, uh, it's an hilarity <laughs> ensues. And then after that romantic encounter, whilst doing Max's books, Leo makes a throwaway comment that says, you know, a producer could make more money with a flop than a hit. And then the whole film is exploring this idea and they go on this journey to find the worst script, the worst director, uh, and to get a lot of funding and close the show in one night so they can make off with the funds. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I think it is a smart idea and it's one that I think came from Mel Brooks's real life. I think he worked with some producers when his younger days who would make flop after flop and make loads of money. Mel Brooks in a Guardian interview uh, in 2008 talks about this story and and he says he worked for a producer who wore a chicken fat stained Hornberg (laughs) and a black (laughs) alpaca coat and that is the costume pretty much that Zero Mostel wears in the film and uh, and he pounced on little old ladies and would make love to him. They gave him money for his plays and they were so grateful for his attention. Later on there were a couple of guys who were doing flop after flop and flop and living like kings and a press agent told Mel Brooks uh, God forbid they should ever get a hit because they'll never pay off the backers there you go and that was the idea which is fascinating yeah 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 yeah. and genuinely funny conceit that first scene of them meeting for the first time really feels like a play it's 22 minutes that Mm. first scene it's so long. A One single location. long opening scene, which is just the two characters meeting together and uh, for the first time and coming up with the idea. But then oh, after that, we're just running around all over the place. It's a, it, I think it's a scrappy bit of a mess. It doesn't feel like it has much aesthetic consistency, mm. although tonally, I think... He fully gets his idea and realises it. Uh, It's got really good bones there. And then, obviously, this film became a Broadway show in the early 2000s, that then toured and toured and toured and toured, and then they made the 2005 film of the musical of the film, which uh, is an interesting piece of work as well. Yeah, it's had a funny old life, I think, but it's still something that makes me laugh a lot to this day. I really love it. I hadn't seen this film before this year, and it was one of those like films that was on my list of. It's really embarrassing. I haven't seen that really famous sure. comedy. It's a cult classic uh, that you know has a life on Broadway and has been is significant enough to be remade and all of this stuff. And it's Mel Brooks, and he's a big deal, right? Mm. So it was re-released earlier this year, and I went along to the cinema to watch it. Yeah. And then you chose this film as well, so I watched it again. So I've seen this film twice in about four weeks. That's too much. It's it's good to get under the skin of it, really, though, considering it's Mel. Brooks's first film as director and, and writer I think he's got there's some there's some really good ideas in there but it doesn't feel polished as you say no uh, but I think it the highs are high enough for the audience to sort of stay on side and to to appreciate the comedy but also to sort of you know you can just ignore some of the stuff that doesn't really make sense absolutely it's certainly hit and miss I think that it's key winning facet is the two performances from the leads. I Mm. think that's undoubtedly the thing that works the best in the film for me. So Zero Mostel was like a comedian and a theatre actor for years. He only died a few years after the producers was made, I think. Uh, Maybe like four or five years after after it was made. Yeah, much celebrated New York Jewish comic who did a few bits of of pieces of screen work. This was Gene Wilder's breakout film. This was his 
the film that made him a name. And Wilder was nominated for the Oscar for Best Supporting, and Brooks was nominated for and won and won Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, Just so at the unbelievable. Uh, the nineteen sixty nine Academy Awards, the year yeah. after this was released, he beat Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote two thousand and one yes. A Space Odyssey. I love. Do you know what? That's genuinely one of the one of the other reasons that I chose this film is that I just love the idea that the producers in two thousand and one were released in the same year. I think it's like so silly. I love the. I mean, I think they were released at uh, different ends of the calendar year, but I love the idea of <laughs> potentially being able to do a double bill in nineteen sixty eight of those two films. That really makes me laugh. And also, uh, running time-wise, it's the opposite. That would not be allowed in this film, first of all. I think it's also fun. Both of them have this legacy. Like, we both, from 50 years ago, we don't know many films uh, today, but both of those films have recently had cinema re-releases a couple of weeks apart from each other in the UK, and and people still talk about both of them quite reverentially, and and they're very much part of pop culture. And I think um, The Producers is one of those not loved in its time, it was not well-reviewed, it was not a box office success at all. And I think it's very much thanks to the leverage of the Brooks dynasty that it's become the cult classic that it is because at the time people were uh, not having it. No one was having it. Would this film be as fated today if it was Mel Brooks's only film? No. Because he, he made a huge body of work after this. Yeah. But I don't know if this film is the best example of Mel. No, I know. I think it'd be. I think it'd be forgotten because no one remembered it at the time. And I, th- I honestly think it's just looking looking back that it's become part of the you know Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, etc. I like Mel Brooks a lot. I think he is a duly venerated satirist, and I think he's a very talented man who's had a lot of success over the years. But obviously, littered throughout that career, there's you know. Spaceballs and Dracula Dead and Loving It and all sorts of mad bits and pieces that don't quite work. Yeah, a scrappy debut, but one that I think, crucially, those jokes are fantastic. Surrounding that, you have two proper three-dimensional characters that I think really, really, really work. I just love everything about the two of them. I love their chemistry. I love the setup that one is a fraught, manic, prone to panic attacks caterpillar who's yet to become a butterfly, the other who is an old, broken, lush, who genuinely frightens and terrifies the other. I think that dynamic is so funny. I was thinking about the film, I was reminded of what it was that introduced me to the film in the first place. When I was like nine or ten, there was one of those list programmes on Channel 4 called um, the top 100 greatest films of all time. And the clip that they show from the producers is Leo's panic attack Mm -hmm. in that first opening scene. And he can only be sated and calmed down by the blue blanket that he holds the hand when he was a baby. And he explains all of this to Max. And Max is barely sympathetic, but very fascinated by what the hell this mad mania is that's come from this uh, poor little guy. And I remember seeing Gene Wilder go into this deranged panic attack. Like he's fully feeling it. It's like you can see like veins popping in his head and his neck and his his face is turned puce and he's genuinely sweating and you can really feel the mania just because he's frightened by the man that he has to do the accounts for and i'd totally forgotten about that until i was thinking about the film recently and what it was that introduced me to me to it and why i love it so much and i think 
that opening very long scene lays a lot of great foundations for the rest of the film. It's just character work. It's like 20 minutes, here are your characters, and then we're going to see them interact with all sorts of other weirdos for the rest of the film. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, and glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... You have 48 seconds left. Hurry, hurry. Oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the columns... 28 seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. It's funny how, in terms of the economy of time in the film, because they do spend 21 minutes or 22 minutes in this one location of an 88-minute long film. It's a play. But that's the foundations, and he needs to do that, because then you can have these very choppy scenes where they cut to various people's apartments or theatres or whatnot. But you know know they're doing that, and they've, they've they've sort of banked that time earlier the setup so you can have a very quick conversation here there or whatever yeah. and it's and it's fine because it's just playing off of what you remember from that first scene exactly i do think the casting is genius both in terms of their like physical appearance and their styles of acting so and, funny. And, and comedy because i mean gene wilder is is a new actor at this point yeah and i think that's really great that he's working with zero mostel who is way more experienced and the characters are both supposed to be he's a novice he's never produced a play before he's mm-hmm. been suckered in by this charismatic guy he looks up to and is a bit afraid of and and he gets sort of roped into this it's also playing on that old like comedy trope of if you think back to laurel and hardy like they have that dynamic sure. and that dynamic is used sort of throughout comedy of having the unwilling but has to go along with it sidekick and it's a great trope and i feel like that trope probably is is one of the legacies of this film you know like there are people will say i'll play it like zero mostel and gene wilder in the producers if they want to get that dynamic together i think watching the film now i was surprised by how screechy the beginning was i fully agree and it's actually it's not just that opening scene although there is so much shouting there's so much shouting in the whole film they are yelling at each other the whole time and i love that high energy i think that's another thing that i find very attractive in the film there's a lot of great humor that comes out of that and just some fantastic deliveries i also am just fully obsessed with max bialystok's appearance the appearance of that character the the work that they've done to make him look like that the costume choices are so funny he wears these like mad crush velvet suits and the cravats that opening scene he's wearing the red velvet smoking jacket with the big b for bialystok monogrammed on the breast and his like mad sweep comb over is so funny and it's like just drenched in sweat and crazed and there's like a, a, a jut of hair that comes out of the back that looks like it is threatening to become a mullet he just looks so ridiculous and i think what Mostel does with that is that that character creation stuff he then uses everything that they've built up from the foundations of his performance and from the script and then what he puts into it are these mad line deliveries there are moments in that film where it feels like there are a number of asides he could just be looking directly at the camera for that stuff and it's so curious to see stuff like that he has these wild eyes and the most amazing speaking voice i just think he's a marvel i wish we'd seen him in so many more films and would love to have more of him to look at and you can youtube stuff and it's nice to see him in other things but that performance i think is just so intrinsically funny he's very good in an episode of the muppet show which i watched for research Uh, there's a sketch with him and sandy eagle yes uh, which is is very very good would recommend uh, seeking that out 
So the play that they find is called Springtime for Hitler. Which was the original title of the of the producers. That was what they were going to call it. And as a result of this, the film was released in Sweden as Springtime for Hitler. No way. Not the producers. And no idea. subsequently, every one of Mel Brooks's other films has been called Springtime for something in, in Sweden. Sweden. <gasps> so Blazing Saddles is Springtime for Sheriff. Young Frankenstein is Springtime for Frankenstein. Really and Space Wars is Springtime for Space, etc., etc., etc. Mel Brooks released about 12 films as director. They all are in Sweden, Springtime for something, That's which would be fantastic. a really cute box set uh, to own. Uh, I can see why it wasn't called Springtime for Hitler in sure. 1968 in the USA. It's so close yeah. to the end of World War II. And Brooks did have problems getting financing for this film. Yeah, uh, it, it went was around in Germany, right? Or at least it wasn't released in Germany. I imagine at the time, 1968, doing a having a play in a film called Springtime for Hitler would be massively controversial. That's probably why some critics didn't like it. Maybe it was just too out there. He has spoken so much over the years about his relationship with Adolf Hitler. And I think what I really enjoy and embrace about that stuff is that he sees his comedy as an act of vengeance mm. as a prolific jewish voice creating something that is built for us to laugh in the face of adolf hitler i think that stuff works really well and i like that i like that vengeance idea that is demonstrated in the nazi sympathizer character who's written this screenplay who when we meet him I mean, is he's... he a nazi sympathizer or is he just a nazi <laughs> he's just a nazi it's, it's, it's kind of interesting meeting him because he's the the sort of third major character we meet after a really weird exchange with a woman sticking her head out of a window oh, who is scene. the landlady of this, this property. <laughs> and that was in terms of like thinking of how the time is used in this film. There's like two minutes on this scene where the characters stand outside a block of apartments, <laughs> like shouting at this woman who's asking well, who they want to see. Yeah. I was like, you don't need this for the story, but it's nice that it's there. I think that's the Mel Brooks way. I think, I think that is throughout all of his films. Number one in the priority list is jokes. Mm. And number two is like narrative cohesion, maybe. Or maybe even lower down the list. I think he's just so preoccupied with things that are funny and that will make people laugh that he's sort of less interested in the putting together of it all. But it just about works. Like, he'll scrape through, he'll get there. And yeah, great point with the landlady, the concierge woman. Yeah, you don't need that scene. It's completely pointless. They could just turn up and um, ring the doorbell and go up and see the writer. But then you'd lose two minutes of a woman saying concierge. Who do you want? No one gets in the building unless I know who they want. I'm the concierge. My husband used to be the concierge, but he's dead. Now I'm the concierge. It's Mel Brooks. These are broad brushstrokes. This is parody and farce and high silliness. So I think with the scenes with the writer and the director and, and all the other interactions that they have with various people throughout the rest of the film, the joy that I get is their interactions with those people as opposed to the humour that is emanating from that character. I find a lot of the other characters particularly amusing, although there are some good jokes here and there. I think the guy that plays Hitler is fantastic. But it's their, their interactions with those other characters that I think really keeps that film afloat after that first incredible and foundation-laying scene. It's almost like these are bullet points in the script. They go to see the writer, they go to find a director, they go and do this, they go and do that. Yeah. Their reaction to how they are sort of uncomfortable with these characters are even weirder than them yeah. is, is the point of humour. Like you can see Mel Brooks jotting that down on a napkin, can't you? Like, you know, it's a, it's a box-ticking exercise, but one that I think 
when humor is the lead and the jokes work, then the film works. And thank God for Zero Mustel and Gene Wilder because I think they're so great. Why was Zero Mustel not nominated as well as Gene Wilder? It, it is mad, and it's a great shame that I, I think Mel Brooks and Zero Mustel had a not very great time working together on the film. Right, and that's probably why he's not in any of other um, Mel Brooks's other films, whereas Gene Wilder is pretty mm. much in all of them. You're right. I think it was a tricksy relationship. I think he had to convince him to be in the film. Yes. I think he was particularly enamoured, and thank God he did. I love that performance. Well, so he's, he's now remembered for this. Where I think at the time he yeah. didn't want to, he didn't want to do this. But it, it, I think the story is Mel Brooks sent the screenplay to um, Zero Mustel's wife, who really loved oh. it and convinced him to do it. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Because yeah. Mel Brooks at this point is a, you know, he's been on TV, he's a comedian, he's not a director. Yeah, yeah And yeah. Zero Mustel's worked with so many big directors before this. Even if you watched after watching that film, you're like, this guy's not a director. He's a comedian who's put a camera in front of some stuff. I do think that middle section of the film flags for me uh, until we get to the character LSD, who plays, as you mentioned, Hitler in yeah. the in the Springtime for Hitler show. And I think, I guess for me, this is like a really, it's a sandwich made with really, really delicious bread in terms of the <laughs> yeah. 20 minute opening scene and the whole of the, the whole musical number and putting that show on. Uh, but the middle bit for me is maybe not the best filling. I fully see that. It, it has some kinks that definitely could and should have been ironed out. When we get to... LSD. I can't remember what the character's full name is, but he shortens it to LSD, who's played by Dick Sean. Fantastic mm. name. He is just so funny. To play Hitler as like a hippie beatnik is just a golden choice from Mel Brooks there, I think. He's physically so funny. He's playing it like a lounge lizard, hunched over, and his arms and his hands are moving like a weird snake the whole time. His voice is so funny. And his singing voice is not actually that bad. I love that stuff. He's ridiculous. But the whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> hey, man. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, baby. I'll leave you. Now leave me alone. <laughs> And there's all of these guys who want to be Hitler and, and they're not right. And then a guy turns in for the wrong audition and Max Bialystok thinks this is his masterstroke. Okay, I finally found the guy who isn't even supposed to be auditioning for this part. He's definitely the worst part. My play will close <laughs> on opening night. And that's his comeuppance. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. LSD is such an unpredictable character. He He's genuinely funny, both in the film, in the reality of the film and for us, the audience. And when we finally see the show put on, that's what backfires. <laughs> I was just thinking, about that Hitler audition montage is just so funny. Getting like, just the sight of seeing fifty guys with toothbrush moustaches all shouting over the top of each other, and then going into their individual auditions. The guy that sings "Marriage of Figaro," the guy, the guy that sings "A Wandering Minstrel Eye," who's got such a high tenor voice. He sounds like Kermit the Frog. He's like a wandering minstrel. It's so funny. And yeah, as you say, then getting to the the show itself is really something. I don't think the the film lets you down there. Just having the characters not understand that it would be appreciated as a satirical smash mm. is such a joy. The stylistic choices that they choose for the theatre show is so much fun. Giant cannons and yeah. dancers. I mean, we do have to talk about the inherent sexism in this film and indeed all of Mel Brooks' work mm. at some point, which is very evident on stage in that scene and in previous scenes as well. That stuff's tricky. The Ula character is bad and 
legitimately full-on 100% sexist a just doesn't work. Like yeah. you, don't need, you right. don't need that character in the film. But I guess at the time, maybe that was supposed to be funny. The character is a secretary that they, they treat themselves. And I think he even says, a I'm going to buy you a toy. I want, no, he wants to buy himself a toy. I'm Bloom doesn't understand what this toy. means. And then they you see the character of Ula, who's wearing like a plastic raincoat, and he can click his fingers and she takes it off and starts dancing. It's really grim. That was considered a joke at some point. Yeah. And it's weird watching that in the film now. It's also weird because the gaze is not just the characters who are titillated by Ula. It's very much, and this is for us as well, boys, mm. like that's very much what the film is doing. And it's horrible. It's a sad shame. And they're, 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 those characters exist in the rest of Mel Brooks' work as well. It was... Mm, it's that sleazy part of comedy, which uh, you do think of when you think of, like, 60s nightclubs and 70s, like, the carry-on films. You know, it's that sensibility of being quite exploitative, which is weird that it actually carries on into the stage show, which was written in the noughties, in the like, late 90s noughties, and the film that was made in the noughties. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it was on Broadway in 2001, and that film is, what, 2005? I think so. Like watching it now, do you do you have a fondness for it because you enjoyed it when you were younger as a child, or do you think if you watched it, you know, as a thirty-two-year-old man watching it now, would you enjoy it as much as you you do? I think this is a film that I've loved um, for twenty years, and I feel like yeah, I, I probably I probably have less of a great time if I watched it now for the first time. I think those two performances from Wilder and Mustella so undeniably imbued with like proper comic genius i think it does enough to get you through when other things aren't working or are actively repellent it's really tricky stuff it's such a shame to reappraise things from your past childhood loves and be like well that doesn't work anymore that's that for the bin and i think while moments of this film two scenes of this film the two other scenes are toxic i think the rest i feel so warm-hearted and so generous towards the rest of it that that i think that stuff still works it's it's really it's really tricky god i just love mustel and wilder so much I think there's such a perfect partnership. I think one of the great assets in Mel Brooks's arsenal is he can write a song and he knows who to work with for writing music. Yeah. It would be so bad if this film was about putting on a show, but uh, a musical show, but the music was terrible. Yeah, yeah, The music yeah. is great. It's really good. I think, um, you know, in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, the character of Garth Marenghi has a, a credit that says theme tune based on a tune originally whistled by Garth Marenghi or whatever. I think that's genuinely true of of Mel Brooks I think like spring like springtime for Hitler and Germany I think that comes from Mel Brooks head and I think he like records himself doing that and sent over to uh, John Morris and and that's that I think he did the same thing with the the musical in the early noughties he just knows a tune and doesn't know what to do with it gets a guy in to write it out and it does lend itself to a musical adaptation because of that as well I think yeah. you know, he's got you know he knows a bit about music yeah, uh, yeah, which yeah. is which is really fun and music and comedy do for me anyway they hit a sweet spot which I do really enjoy 100% I mean that's yeah it's one of the key reasons that I've chosen this film because those are my, some of my key loves in researching for this podcast I watched Mel Brooks's Oscar acceptance speech you've because done so the, much research hey hey you know really not a fly good. by night really good <laughs> Yeah, the, go on. I mean, all of the Oscar speeches are put on the Academy's YouTube channel, which is very nice for us as film nerds. Oh my to watch. god, I gotta but, watch uh, that. It's really
really fun watching Mel Brooks come up on stage and accept his award whilst they're playing Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> and it's the Academy band, you know, it's huge 50 piece orchestra yeah, are playing this. And you're like, oh, that's a really good song. Yeah. Like a giant orchestra can play this at the most prestigious event in the film calendar. Yeah. And they're playing Springtime for Hitler. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick's just lost an Oscar. <laughs> and they're playing Springtime for Hitler as Mel Brooks bounces on stage. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's one of the key strings to that film's bow. We have that theme from minute one. It is the opening credits. It's like a part of the fabric. And it's great. It's a well-constructed song. It's really really funny with great jokes in it i'm gonna watch that acceptance speech that's a great tip thank you so the producers is in the festival thank it's you it's the first film in the festival it's been accepted it's accepted you fill out the paperwork i've you. dutifully read everything you've ticked all the right boxes yes. and uh, and here you are so the film's on how do you, I mean, a film festival gets lots of competition, lots of, uh, you know, things trying to get people's attention. How do you get people to come and watch the producers? Do you, do you have an idea for maybe a gimmick that is like, okay, come and see the producers tonight, guys, because I've got a dot, dot, dot. So we have to be very careful here. We are, as a world, experiencing a global shift to the right. Mm. I'm not a secret cinema fan. Not my vibe, not my bag. Don't like it. And I would not recommend hanging giant swastikas from the rafters. Terrible idea. I think that would be genuinely tasteless. Really awful. So I would not recommend... That was the first thing that came into my head because that's what they do in the number. Mm. Horrible. I think the way you have to get people in... I think you have to get Mel there, right? Yeah. He's alive. He's 92. He He's doing a show in Vegas right now. Great guy. He was he was in London this year. He came and did a, you know, a, in conversation. Mel's the key here. And with a, you know, there's a full generation of people like John Williams is coming to London at the end of the year to play some of his hits. And not to be morbid about these things, how many more times is John Williams going to come to London? Not many. Am I going to see him? Absolutely, I am. Mm. And I think Mel and his age is the key here if mel's coming to london you're getting a ticket because this guy's 92 you don't know how much longer he's going to be around for and you want to hear a sweet little old man tell some anecdotes about a film he made 50 years ago yes please thank you very much hold the giant swastikas we don't <laughs> need them we don't want them yeah i think i think that's the hook that's what i'd go for i feel like mel would be okay with this as well i feel like he'd approve some sort of copy on the poster which is you know one last chance to see mel. <laughs> yeah exactly and i think mel might be interested in the festival i bet all of his films, or I bet most of his films are under 90 minutes. I've not checked this out. I've, there's no basis in fact here, but he feels like, to me, the kind of guy that makes a short film. I bet Spaceballs is not going to be anything over 85 minutes long. I mean, how long is Dracula Dead and Loving It? Is it longer than half an hour? It shouldn't be. I think he'd approve of the festival. I think he'd fly over. I think if the festival can afford to pay for first-class flights for Mel, he'd very much appreciate it. If not, I'm sure he'd come over purely for the love of cinema. Yeah, he'll he'll be okay in coach. I'd come to watch Mel Brooks present the producers. That'd be great. I'm so glad because you're hosting the festival. <laughs> I'm glad you'll be there. I'll see you there on opening night. Do you think this film could or should be longer than 88 minutes? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it stretches it out to 88 minutes. There's stuff in that film I'd get rid of. The film of the musical version in from 2005 
That film is a, it's like 134 minutes and it feels it. It's so long. The nice thing about this film and this question is actually we have proof that someone has made a longer version <laughs> exactly. of it and it's not as good. Nope. <laughs> you can just put them side by side <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's just a fact. I wouldn't change. Oh, no, I would change a thing, but I wouldn't make it longer. So there we have it, Mel Brooks's The Producers, the first film in the 90 minutes or less film festival. Thank you, Simon, for coming on today and, and being the first guest on the podcast. You can follow Simon on Twitter at Cy Renshaw. Simon and I have also uh, worked together on the Picture House podcast for a number of years. Do have a look at our pod archive. We've got a pod stack go back about eight years on there. So if you like hearing our voices in the same place, do take a look at some of the uh, Picture House podcast episodes over there. And thank you listeners for downloading this first episode of a strange new podcast that you've probably never heard of before. It really means a lot to us. If you liked what you heard, uh, please rate us or subscribe or, or tell your friends send a tweet or a, or a text or or maybe write a letter it really means a lot uh, any sort of conversation you have off the back of this show will really benefit the podcast and, and and maybe we'll find some more people to join this ridiculous venture the podcast was produced today by louise owen and me sam clements our artwork is by sam gilby our music is by martin ostwick do check out martin's podcast song by song by the way, it's one of my favourite shows and it's such a thrill to have Martin doing the music for this podcast. And the show was edited by Luke Smith, a hero of mine. Thank you, Luke. So that's it, really. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with a new episode. We'll have a brand new guest talking about a brand new film. Until then, you can find us on social media, specifically Twitter and, and Instagram. We'll be, we're on some of the social medias. Anyway, we're on Twitter at 90MinFilmFest, and it's the same on Instagram. If you've got any questions or just want to say hi, uh, you can find us there. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.